So the question arises, what is God like? What sort of person is he? And we will spend eternity answering that question because the finite can't measure the infinite. However, we can know something of the heart of Adonai, our God. He's revealed himself. Now people say, where do I find God? I have to say they're not looking because you see him in creation. You see him in his word. You see him in Jesus. Uh, in creation, when did you last put a planet into orbit? That's how great he is. He's beyond the known universe, beyond time. Have you ever created something like a rose? Put a leaf or a blade of grass under a microscope, you'll see structure there that's more wonderful than anything any man has ever created. Uh, one of the founding fathers of the United States, Benjamin Franklin, built himself a model of the solar system. When he moved one of the planets around the sun, all the rest moved in their correct orbits. Now, uh, there was an atheist, Thomas Paine, visited him and looked at this thing and said, that's really marvelous. Who made it? And Ben Franklin, who was not particularly religious, said, it made itself. And, and Paine said, well, don't talk nonsense. You're teasing me. That could not possibly make itself. And Ben Franklin looked at him and said, but you believe the original made itself. Think about that. And I'm convinced that if we didn't have a theory of evolution, which isn't new, the ancient Greeks had such a theory, by the way, someone would have invented it because they want to explain away the living God. If there's a living God, if there's a creator, we're all answerable to him, and they don't like that. So they have a theory to explain him away. Of course, the ultimate revelation of the Father is his son, Jesus. Jesus said, he hath seen me, hath seen the Father. Jesus did his Father's will and destroyed the works of the evil one. But there's another revelation of God, Hashem, the name, gave his people Israel his Torah or instruction, or as you most often say in English, law. The law speaks volumes about God. It tells us about his sense of justice and the things he likes. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in them is great reward. So Torah, or instruction, or law, as we usually say in English, was given to Israel for Israel, furthermore for Israel in the land that God had given her. However, God can speak to Jew and Gentile alike through Torah. There are scriptural principles underlying the law, and above all, it is the revelation of El Shaddai, our God, it is evident that in the early church, the leadership put the principles behind the law into action. Remember the feeding of the widows and so forth. That was a, a critical matter, and they adopted Torah principles in that. In the 19th century, here in the United Kingdom, godly men took these principles and used them in writing the laws of the UK. And the UK became the most stable, secure, and great nation on the earth at that time. Now, the law demanded holiness, but not, did not provide a means for holy living. 
In the new covenant, we have the Holy Spirit come to live in us. The presence of God himself comes and lives in our bodies. I just find that incredible. It's just, you know, in, in, in those days in Israel, they, they would go up to the tabernacle, the temple, and could talk to the priests. And the priest could go into the, the laver and they'd go into the holy place, the, the uh, table of incense and the menorah. But only the high priest could go right into the holy of holies. And yet God has chosen to come and dwell amongst us. I, I just think that's the, the new birth, the new covenant is just a remarkable thing. We're so privileged. So I'm going to talk this morning from possibly my favorite book in the Bible, Leviticus. And I have to say, when I was a young believer, I couldn't think of anything more boring. It goes on and on about sacrifices, then who can lay with who, and then keeping a, a, a certain measures and so forth. I mean, this stuff. And then, as I got a little more mature and I listened to some good Bible studies and took a look a little more closely, I found the character of God was here. You could actually see this person in, in these writings. You found out things about him. And it's just become such a precious book to me. Now, the name Leviticus comes from the Latin, which in turn comes from the name of the book in the Greek Septuagint Bible. In Hebrew, Leviticus is called Ve'aikra, which means and he called. It's the first word of the book. It starts and, and he called. Um, and in Exodus, the tabernacle has been built and dedicated. Uh, God's Shekinah glory was upon it. Then in Leviticus 1.1, God calls to Moses and gives him Leviticus 1 through 24. Then chapters 25, 26 and 27 are given from Sinai. So I'll just go through how the book divides up before we settle on a particular part we're going to study this morning. So chapters 1 through 7 deal with five offerings and the laws concerning them. And each offering pictures a different aspect of the person and work of Yeshua, Jesus. In particular, his sacrifice for us. Then chapters 8 through 10 deal with the priesthood. Uh, we belong to a better priesthood now. Chapters 11 through 22 deal with cleanliness, cleanliness and holiness in daily life. Uh, chapter 16 specifically is about the Day of Atonement. And chapters 18 through 20 in particular expand the Ten Commandments and apply them to life situations. Chapter 23 is the seven holy feasts of the Lord. You sometimes hear me talking about the feasts of Israel. But they're not actually the Feast of Israel, but they're the Feast of the Lord. 24 through 26, laws and prophecies for the promised land. Chapter 27, laws concerning vows and voluntary laws. But I'm going to take a look, a detailed look at one chapter and see God's heart towards his people. So turn to Leviticus 19. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Remember, God spoke to us at the beginning of this year that holiness was important. And we find the key to holiness is having short accounts with God, as uh, the late watchman Nee would have said. Now, the New Testament actually amplifies this. 1 Peter 1 verses 13 through 16. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts of your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. The conversation there means life. Your, your way of life, although I think it's interesting that 
that it's translated conversation because it's usually our mouths that uh, get us in trouble and are, are unholy. So I, I can't, it's nice that it's translated that way. As I say, in the New Covenant, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. We are joined to the living Messiah. The Old Covenant demanded holiness but couldn't provide the dynamic for it. So verse 3. Ye shall fear every man, his mother and his father, and keep my Sabbaths, for I am the Lord your God. The parent stands in the place of God for the child. That's why being a godly parent is so important. Children learn to obey God by first obeying their parents. Godly conduct does not start here in church in the Sunday school. Godly conduct starts at home. And keep my Sabbath. I believe the Sabbath here refers, referred to here are the major feasts, Passover, Pentecost and Tabernacles. These celebrated God, Father God's marvellous care for his children. And notice that the mother is mentioned first because it's the mother who raises children and imparts values to them and shapes their lives. In the book of Kings, or the books of Kings, with only two exceptions, the mother each, of each king of Judah is mentioned at the end of each chapter about their, or as, as records the story of their lives, right at the end when he records their deaths. It'll say whether he was a good king or a bad king, and it'll say, and his mother was. Why does it do that? Because that king was raised on his, his, his uh, mother's knees. That's where he got his values. In San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles, there's a school of Judaism, and they run a course for people who want to convert to Judaism. There's any number of Latin American ladies there queue up to convert to Judaism. And there's a reason for that. They want, one of, they want a husband. They want one of these nice Jewish men who... who uh, behave like gentlemen, work hard, provide for their families, and treat their wives with respect. Um, because in their culture, and I love their Latin American culture, but there's a strong emphasis that the women are very, very feminine, but the men are these macho men, and they all their women are like as if they're around as if they're slaves. And the women don't like it. And I used to want to say, I never did, but I always just say, but you're going to raise your children to be exactly the same way, aren't you? Because they got that from their mums, they didn't get it from their dads, their mum let them be a little horror who, who could uh, order their sisters and their cousins around. And when they grew up, that's how they treated their girlfriends, their fiancés, their wives. Verse 4. Turn ye not unto idols, nor make unto yourselves molten gods. I am the Lord your God. Now this restates the first two commandments. They were not even to glance at idols, and heathen religion is designed to appeal to the eye. A long time ago, I went and preached the gospel in the east of India. Then it was a state of Andhra Pradesh. They split up the states differently since then, so it might be a different state now. But anyway, almost every block there was a Hindu temple. And there would always be a spire, and often shelves on the spire, and all the gods would be there. And it was hard not to look at them because they were just peculiar creatures, men with elephants' trunks and things. You, just, you, you knew it was not good, and you looked away from it. But uh, they, they make these things to catch the eye, and every one of them has a demon behind it. I often uh, wonder what it was like for the Apostle Paul, Rabbi Shaul. Uh, he would have been the most wonderful apostle to the Jews, but God chose him to go to the Gentiles, and he went up through the Grecian world, going across to what today is Turkey, going through the ancient cities, uh, Corinth and so forth. And those places were just full of idolatry and the, the Roman and Greek gods and the heathen practice and some of it was horrible. And as a Jew, he wasn't supposed to look at it. And yet it was almost impossible not to look at it. It would have been everywhere. But he, he went in there and he preached the gospel. And, and uh, you know, today, 
we still reap the fruit of, of uh, his missions up into, up into Europe and Asia Minor. Verses 5 through 8. And if you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings unto the Lord, you shall offer it at your own will. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it, and on the morrow. And if aught remain until the third day, it shall be burnt with fire. And if it be eaten at all on the third day, it is abominable. It shall not be accepted. Therefore, everyone that eateth it shall bear his iniquity, because he hath profaned the hallowed thing of the Lord, and that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Now, the peace offering was a voluntary offering. You didn't have to bring one. If you wanted to come and bring that peace offering uh, to the altar of offering and give it to the priest to be slain and, and uh, put there, you had to do everything according to an order. You had to do it right. You remember uh, Aaron's sons, two of them burned strange fire and they, they died? Because you want to serve God, God has an order for it. You don't give God your second best. You want to go and take a Sunday school class, that's wonderful. Do it with your whole heart. Do it as unto the Lord. It's not a second-rate thing. This isn't less important than your secular job that you do on weekdays. 9 through 10. And you all know I love this. For when you reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of the field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest, and thou shalt not glean thy vineyard, neither shalt thou gather every grape of the vineyard. Thou shalt leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. When you see one of those commandments ending, I am the Lord your God, that's him giving emphasis to it. He's saying, I am, and the Lord there is, is the Tetragrammaton, the name of God, the pre-existing and, and the existing for eternity name of God. It's uh, yud heh vav -Hey. And he's emphasizing, it's me that's commanding you to do this. It's not a small thing. And in the ancient world, as I said before, being a widow or an orphan was not a fun thing because there was nothing for you. You were just a, an economic inconvenience and that's been true in, in heathen countries almost up to the present day certainly as recently as uh, the, the 1800s that this, this sort of thing would have, would have been there would have been absolute poverty for, for, um, for a widow or, or, or a, child, a fatherless child um, as I've said before the solution in India was they just burned the widows with, with the deceased husband and here in Israel there was a social program and not just a check in the mail or have some money. No, come on in, be part of the productive system of the nation. There is something for you in the harvest. In an agrarian society, you relied on the fields, the farms, the harvests. You went out and farmed that. That was how you fed your, your um, family. The sale was how you bought the things you need. And the, the poverty-stricken, the widows, the fatherless children were brought in and told, the farmer's taken 80 or 90%, but what's there is yours. You come and glean it. That's how you're going to feed. If you understood the culture of the ancient world, this was just a wonderful provision by our God. And you remember in the book of Ruth, of course, that she came back with her mother-in-law from Moab, and they had nothing. But she was able to go out and gather for the two of them and feed them. Verses 11 and 12. You shall not steal, neither deal falsely, neither lie one to another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, neither shall you profane the name of thy God. I am the Lord. So stealing, defrauding, lying, perjury are all included here. And to deal falsely is a form of stealing. God's name is holy and his people are to demonstrate that. It's interesting. Um, after the flood... 
God speaks to Noah and the rabbis extract something called the seven Noahide laws from that. And they consider that the that Torah, 619 precepts, they're for the Jewish people except for these seven, which they say are for all mankind. And those laws are the foundation for human government. Then later, in Exodus, we get the Ten Commandments and they're God's foundation for Israel. But here is a list of iniquities that Hashem personally detests. Proverbs 16 through 19, he didn't turn to it, I'll, I'll read them to you. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him, a proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that are swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. Interesting that list, isn't it? I think we, you know, in our minds, we, we think that maybe the homosexual, the adulterer, those sort of people are, are the evil ones. I tell you what, the church, can goss, church gossip can do far more damage than what those communities are doing. Really. I'm so happy in, in uh, Calvary Portsmouth, we don't have a grapevine. I talked to someone and, and share the things, and later on I talked to someone else, you didn't hear that? No, because no one talks about other people's business. I think it's absolutely lovely. It's a lovely feature of this church that we don't have some sort of great time. We don't have a gossip running around and we don't all know each other's business. I'm actually trying to be very open about my life. Um, and, when, you know, if I have fellowship with someone. But I find that doesn't actually get transmitted onwards. So I end up sharing the same thing with another brother or sister. But that's okay. That's good. It's a marvelous mark that we don't have a gossip. But... But uh, these sins, the lying tongue, all the damage a liar can do. You can't believe everything that's been, that's been said to you, but you can sure repeat it. Those things are so dangerous. Verse 13, Thou shalt not defraud thy neighbor, neither rob him. The wages of him that is, high, that is hired shall not abide with thee all night until the morning. So the hired laborer is to, is to be paid when he completed a day's work. The money was his wages, he was to be given it. And, and this might surprise you coming from me, but God is interested in the rights of the working man. Yeah, when that guy came to fix your plumbing or your electrics, God wants him to be paid. Absolutely. Because he's got a family to feed. And in Israel, you took a man on to do business. You agreed a contract of labor. You kept your side of it. If not, you were breaking God's holy law. 14. Thou shalt not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shall fear thy God. I am the Lord. Notice he emphasizes his name twice there. Uh, Satan's already done a work in, in the lives of the disabled, and God is against those who add to that work. And today we should be praying for the sick and for the afflicted in order to reverse Satan's work. You know, I can think of nothing worse. Someone is blind, and you deliberately trip them up. To me, that's, that's sickeningly evil. And a deaf man? To curse him, mock him, his condition is an affliction. And you're adding to that evil? Ugh. Verse 15. Ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. For in righteousness thou shalt judge thy neighbor. So in the UK, the judges represent the monarch. There's a little crown above them when they're in court. But all judges represent the great judge. And a judge should never show partiality in judgment. Now, justice is shown with a blindfold, as she should be, because the judge shouldn't care if you're influential in your community or you're nothing in the community. 
you should have justice. That's God's standard. Verse 16, you shall not go up and down as a talebearer among the people, neither shalt thou stand against the blood of thy neighbor. I am the Lord. Again, God emphasizing his name. And say, so you can't believe what you hear, but you can repeat it. And talebearing is slander. Uh, we don't have to go, time to go and look at the letter from James. But uh, he had a lot to say about this subject. Our tongues determine the direction of our lives in more ways than one. Verse 17, thou shalt not hate thy brother in thy heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor, and not suffer sin upon him. This is hard, but it is still the rule for the body of Messiah. It is right to rebuke the person in sin, but not run around and gossip to everyone about it. The New Testament, or Brit Halisha, declares a principle in Galatians 6 verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of weakness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. We are, in a sense, our brother's keepers. But it's not for the rumour mill and the gossip mill. Verse 18, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. I am the Lord. Thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. How do you look out for your own interests? Do the same for your neighbour. An Israelite would pull his own ox out of a ditch. He must do the same for his neighbour. One of us is out of work in our church. What do we do? Oh, I pray for you, brother. Be full. No. How about buying a bag of groceries for that brother? How about looking out for leads for employment? Go around, pray with him, see what his needs are. Take him out to eat. That's how you love your brother. Because we have a problem in English. We only have one word, love. Unfortunately, most days these days it's associated with sex. Now, Greek had four words for love, Koine Greek. I actually think there are more varieties than that. Uh, is some of us here said, oh, we love our queen and we love the British flag and so forth. Nothing to do with sex, actually nothing to do with family and fraternal love, but it is a love. The men here, um, Len and, and Bill, uh, who served in our armed services. They've loved this country. They were willing to give their lives to this country. That's a form of love. But it's not a form we often think of. Fraternal love. Your children and family. You expect them to love mum and dad. You expect them to love each other. Parental love, a different thing again. And it's the love of God, beyond our understanding. But that love should influence us to have that fraternal love. We care for each other. And, and make boundaries. in. You have to have boundaries in your lives. Uh, remember, it is a fraternal love. I mean, I love to give my brothers a holy hug. But that's certainly an outward sign. The real care should be the prayer and the concern for their well-being. I give my sisters a, a holy kiss, a little peck on the cheek, because it's lovely to see them, yeah? But those are the boundaries. So easy to go over them, and then something is beyond what it should have been. It's not necessarily a thing between a man and a woman. Uh, when I was a young believer, you, some of you have seen my friend Wilfred here, and uh, we used to go to fellowship in an apartment in Great Portland Street in London, um, Lizzie Ware's apartment, and there was a wonderful brother there. He'd come to the Lord. He'd, he'd been in university. He was thinking of suicide because he was afflicted with a homosexuality, and he was so appalled about this thing in him, and someone found him and led him to the Lord. And this, this man had a gift in music. Uh, he, he just... He, he could set the scripture to music just absolutely beautifully. We'd sit around the piano and sing with him. It was a wonderful thing. Just a great brother. And for several years, I mean, 17 years old, until I was 20, 21, 22, he, he was one of the brothers I, I would hang out with. We'd, we'd worship God together. 
we'd see each other to eat together, we'd eat in each other's homes. Uh, and a day came when he decided he was going to pursue this homosexual thing after all. And he stopped coming to the meetings. But I would still go around and see him because I felt he was a brother and I wanted to know he was all right. If I could put something positive in his life, I would. And I used to give him a hug when I left and one evening I hugged and it wasn't a holy hug. And you've ever had that thing inside when all, all sorts of emotions happen at once and I pushed him away. I don't think we ever hugged again. You have to make those boundaries, all right? Time to move on. I could talk all day about that. You shall keep my statutes. Thou shalt not let cattle gender with a diverse kind. Thou shalt not sow thy field of mingled seed, neither shall a garment mingled of linen and wool come upon thee. Now, our God is a God of order, not confusion. Domesticated animals were separate from, separated from undomesticated. The field should have one crop cared for as necessary. And wool is a picture of that which is natural, fleshly. Linen signifies the spiritual and godly. A garment made from both, when you try to wash it, will tear because they don't have different expansion and contraction coefficients. So when the one would shrink, it would tear the other. And what's the application to us? Don't mingle truth and error. It's this word, this book, that we're concerned with. We're not concerned with man's philosophies. Verses 20 through 22. And whoever lieth carnally with a woman that is a bondmaid, betrothed on a husband, and not at all redeemed, nor freedom given her, she shall be scourged. They shall not be put to death, because she was not free. And he shall bring his trespass offering unto the Lord, unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, even a ram for a trespass offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the trespass offering before the Lord, for his sin which he hath done, and the sin which he hath done shall be forgiven him. Now usually... The punishment for adultery in, in, in Israel in ancient times was, was death, it was stoning. But here you have a circumstance where a man with power has um, done something, could have been rape, we don't know, to a woman with absolutely no power. Popular theme these days, the, the Me Too movement, which I think is out of control, but that's by the by. And... You can get into this he-said-she-said he, situation. One, they can each point the finger because there's been a sin committed. Well, where it says she should be scourged, that means there'll be an inquisition. But the end result will be that, that uh, the man who should have known better, because he was the one with the power, uh, offers a ram for atonement and that sin is dealt with. So there's a presumption of innocence, but the sin, sins still have to be covered. 23 through 25. And when you shall come into the land, you shall have planted all manner of trees for food, then you shall count the fruit thereof as uncircumcised three years, shall it be uncircumcised, unto you, and, and it shall not be eaten of. But in the fourth year, all the fruit thereof shall be holy to praise the Lord withal. And in the fifth year you shall eat the fruit thereof, that it may yield unto you the increase thereof. I am the Lord your God. Now, usually I love the KJV, the authorized, but I think that's a pretty awful translation. Let me give you the the AAHV, the Adrian Hour Hudson version. When you come into the land and plant all types of trees for food, then prune the buds for three years. The harvest of the fourth year is holy to me as a praise offering. The fifth year you shall eat the fruit of them. This is in order that you may enjoy the increase in the yield. I am the Lord, your Elohim. God knows something about dendrology. That's trees. What he's saying is to maximize that, that 
harvest of fruit, prune the trees back. Any horticulturalist knows this. You prune the trees back to make them strong. And then the fourth year, this is the first fruits. You give the first to the Lord. You get up in the morning. Those are the times to give to the Lord. When you get in from work in the evening, exhort from the day's work. That's not the time. I mean, you should praise God then. You should always be quietly talking to the Father. But give him that time in the morning when your mind's fresh, after that first cup of tea and you've woken up. 26 through 28. You shall not eat anything with blood. Neither shall you use enchantments or observe times. You shall not round the corners of your heads, neither shalt thou mar the corner of thy beard. You shall not make any, any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor print any marks upon you. I am the Lord. So these are the practices of the heathen, and they had to do with the customs following the death of a loved one. They would make marks and so forth. But God's people are not even to look like they observe these things. We are holy because he is holy. And Israel was not to look like the heathen nations around them. Eating with blood is idiomatic. And it means taking the limb of a living animal and making it into a meal. The animal's wound was then cauterized, and the animal got to hop around on three legs for the rest of its life until it was eventually killed for food as well. And this was because in those days they didn't have refrigeration or canning or the things we have today that preserve food. And so the heathen would, if they needed a meal and they wanted to preserve the animal for later, they'd literally cut off one limb, burn that limb so the animal didn't get infected. And the poor thing would hop around. You then take its limb and that would be your Sunday joint. Okay, that's forbidden. Absolutely. For Israel, they couldn't do this. Over and over in Torah, there are admonitions against cruelty to animals. You could take an adult animal that wasn't pregnant, you cut its throat and let it die and eat it. That was permitted. But if an animal had young, you couldn't take the parent away, you couldn't take the mother away because the young needed that animal. This is given in Torah over and over. Cruelty to animals is actually forbidden in Torah. In modern times, you're just ca catching up to this, but it's, uh, no, you couldn't do that. So when you read in the Bible about not eating blood, that's what it's referring to. Is actually mentioned in the, the seven Noahide principles. That's one thing, even Gentiles, God hates to see that done. Do not prostitute thy daughter to cause her to be a whore, lest the land fall to whoredom and then become full of wickedness. Actually, how any father could send his daughter out in that way is absolutely beyond my comprehension. But uh, there are countries like Thailand where it's quite the thing in the rural villages. If a family have a daughter and they're poverty stricken, they'll sell her into prostitution down in Bangkok. And they turn a blind eye to those things down in the city. The police are only interested if someone gets caught doing something. Otherwise, it's just allowed to carry on. And all manner of evil increases in that land. Murder is a common thing in Bangkok. Uh, one verse every Bible believer should know is Galatians 6, verse 7. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For, who, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. If you don't know that verse, you better learn it because you indulge in those sort of things, it's going to come back to bite you. Just sexual immorality, bad news. And the devalue of sex and marriage is a mark of a society in steep decline. We'll leave that subject there. Verse 30. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Again, emphasizing with his holy name, the Tetragrammaton, yud heh vav shall keep my my Sabbath and reverence my sanctuary. Shabbat is a sign between Israel and God. The tabernacle and later the temple were the visible evidence that God dwelt among his people. 
Adonai manifested his presence in the Holy of Holies. The children of Israel were not to forget that. The rest of the temple was around that Holy of Holies and the rest of Jerusalem was around that and the rest of the land around Israel. And they were aware that was the center of their national life. But we need to remember that our bodies are the temple of God's Ruach, God's Spirit. Amen? So, and Shabbat's an interesting one. I think here it is referring to the weekly Sabbath. If I asked you the question, which is the most important Jewish feast, you might come up with various things. Maybe it's Yom Kippur, maybe it's Passover. Sukkot would be a good candidate. The rabbinical answer is, the most important Jewish feast is the weekly Shabbat, because that's a rest from labor, and it's a reminder that God rested from his labor. He wasn't tired, but his work was complete. It was perfect, and he rested. And that's a sign that Israel is God's people. But having said that, the interesting thing about the human body, it can only work for about six days before it needs a rest. And there have been times in history, usually after a revolution, they want to change it and have a 10-day working week because we've got 10 fingers, decimal system's quite nice. Let's work for eight or nine days and then, then have the rest as rest. And within a matter of months, if not years at the outside, they go back to the seven-day week because people are getting tired and then they're getting sick and there are all sorts of problems they have. We're designed to work for six days and have a rest. And I always say, well, we get two days off. That's five days to get your work done at work. A day to do all the stuff you need to do at home, all those bills to pay and the, and the do-it-yourself jobs and the cleaning up, and a, a day to rest and enjoy fellowship. And as Gentiles, I don't think you need to worry about which day it is. Christians, we like to meet on Sunday. That's been the tradition for 1,600 years. That's fine. The Jewish people, it's actually a mark that it's Shabbat. They rest on the seventh day. Verse 31. Regard not them that have familiar spirits, neither seek after wizards to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. He's emphasizing his name, and that's telling you something. And Adonai keeps referring to this type of thing because Israel has been in Egypt, immersed in it. Egypt, we could call it idolatry. It was actually zoolatry. They, they, they were placed for every sort of animal, weird animals, with mixtures of animals, and they worshipped this stuff. For example, the frog was the messenger of the gods. You couldn't harm a frog because that was, that was uh, I think it was the sun god sent a message to you if a frog started chirping outside your door. I mean, these, and Israel had lived in this stuff. And they come out of it. But we know the temptation to have a god you could actually see, and they made the molten calf. And God says, no. No, he's not a God you can see. Not with your natural eyes. He's the God of all that you can see. And Ouija boards, all those things, horoscopes, bad news. Get your information from the Father. He can, he can guide your life. He can show you the way in which to go. No reading tea leaves or anything else. Verse 32. I love this. Thou shalt rise up before the hoary head and honor the face of the old man and fear thy God, for I am the Lord. Respect for the old is godly. The way a people respect and care for their old speaks volumes. When I was young, it was actually very important. You know, nothing even had to be said. You knew that older people respected. Uh, the village I grew up in, Next door neighbor was a very elderly man, Mr. Hilliard, if I remember correctly. He must have been gone many, many years now. And he was a lovely man. He was a wonderful gardener. He'd always share with my parents. But you know, when we saw him coming, we stood in silence, treated him with respect. And that's how we treated the old people in the village. When the National Socialists were in power in Germany, 
it was perfectly legal, quite the thing to do, to go and beat up old people. Yeah, that's true. When the Nazis would invade other countries like Holland, they were kicking the old people around was part of the, how they showed they were in control, they were powerful. That is the epitome of evil. You all know I have a heart for Asia. I, I find the continent, particularly East Asia, very, very civilized. And one of the things I love, the first thing I went there, I went to Malaysia. And a friend of, of actually it's a friend of my then wife, uh, her name was Chen Eng. She had her parents put me up in Kuala Lumpur. And I, on the streets of Kuala Lumpur, I saw the way the old people were respected. And in their house, there were two sisters, Chen Eng and Henning, and they had a brother whose name I forget. Two brothers, actually. And there was one grandparent. I don't know whether it was her maternal grandparent or a paternal grandparent. But I'd be there with, with, with uh, her brothers or whatever. And the door would open. There'd be a key in the lock. The door would open. There would be grandmother. And she'd come in. And it was just like it was her home. She'd go and help herself in the kitchen. And she'd make herself a meal. When she finished, she'd go away. Close the door. By the way, I told my mum to do that. My mum my has a key to my apartment. If she's in Portsmouth or anything, I'm at work. And she wants to stop in heaven. She can come to my apartment and help herself. She rarely does, although when I'm away in the USA, she'll stop by and uh, she will help herself to a drink from the refrigerator or something. And she knows she's free to do that. Why? Because she's my mom. And I treat her with that sort of respect. But I, say, I, I just love to see the way the, um, the uh, Chinese particularly, but the other East Asian peoples are very much the same. Yeah, you, you're never offensive to an old person. And one of the things I learned to do before I went to China oh, a year ago last April, was I learned how to greet, because I knew I'd be meeting uh, some of Suhua's older relatives, and I learned how to properly greet them. And uh, they, they were very pleased that I did. The, fam the family were glad I did that. The parents are both gone, but her mum's brother's husband is still with us, and her father's wife's brother is still with us. I didn't see the father's, well, I didn't see the father's brother-in-law, but I did, see, I did meet the mum's sister-in-law. And uh, she lived on the 30th floor of a tower block, and her Suhua's brother took me up to see, see her. And, uh, and then when I got there, it was uh, Mu. Um, how are you, honored auntie? She was very pleased with that. And, but that's the way you treat people. You have to treat them with that sort of respect. And we're losing that in this country, and it's to our detriment. It really is. That's one of the worst things about this diminishing um, influence of the Word of God in this country is just to see how those basic standards are drifting away. Verses 33 and 34. And if the stranger sojourn with you in your land, you shall not vex him. But the stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you, and thou shalt love him as thyself. For ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Racial hatred is from the pit of hell, and it will destroy a nation. It was what was terrifying Pharaoh of Egypt. He saw people of a different race. And rather than treat them well, he decided that they were uh, a threat to his country and so he enslaved them. And look what happened to Egypt. A nation which treats people differently according to their complexion is a nation heading for trouble. Whoever the foreigner is, if you've allowed them to live here, no one says who you open your borders for. They're here, you treat them as a, as a fellow citizen. And they get the same treatment with weights and measures and all those things that a citizen gets. You cannot defraud someone because they're a foreigner. So remember, Ruth was a Moabitess, not the friendliest nation to Israel. Actually, they descended from Lot, Abraham's uh, nephew. 
came about by rather ungodly means. But she came to Israel with her mother-in-law and she had the right to glean in the fields with the daughters of Israel. And I don't believe God is impressed. We refer to our near neighbours of frogs or krauts and I can assure you God does not laugh at jokes about Irish people. Verses 35 and 36. You shall do no unrighteousness in judgment, in meat yard, in weight, or in measure. Just balances, just weights, a just ether, a just hin, shall you have. That's referring to um, to uh, lengths, weights, solid volume measurements, liquid volume measurements like gallons and so forth. All these things were to, were to be a common measure which people understood. Just balances, just weights, a just ether, a just hin shall ye have. I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. So our God is actually in the weights and measures business. If you sell a pound or a kilogram of something to the purchaser, should receive what he or she paid for. And that's the way Elohim put the universe together. He didn't cheat. It sounds so easy. The scripture is telling Israel to trade honestly. But I think something in all of us would sometimes look like something for nothing. Whenever I see a special offer in the mail or something, this is free or this is reduced, I always think, no, it's not. You want something else here. Call me cynical if you will. Verse 37. Therefore shall ye observe all my statutes and all my judgments and do them, I am the Lord. He is Israel's Lord. He brought them out of Egypt. That's reason enough. We are not our own. We are bought with a price. Over in Amos 9, in about the 8th century uh, BC, God pronounced judgment on Israel, and it's tragic. This is what he said. Amos 9, verses 4 and 5, don't turn there, I'll just read it to you. Hear this, O ye, but swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of the land to fail, saying, When will the new moon be gone, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath that we may set forth wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel great, and falsifying the balances by deceit? The new moon is, is, a, is a holiday in the Jewish calendar, and you know what Shabbat is. And they couldn't wait for that to be over, so they could get out on the streets. And if you bought an ephah of grain, you got a bit less than an ephah. But they were sure didn't reduce the price. No, the shekel they made great. And God wasn't impressed. In the new covenant, God is father to each of us because of the blood of Jesus. He cares for us and ours. Uh, some years ago, I read the story of John and Elizabeth Stamm, you may have read it, I don't know. In 1934, they went to China to preach the gospel and help the church in the town of Jingdei. Jingdei is in the province of Jiangxi, right next to the border with Anhui. They had their newborn baby with them, and a very short time after beginning their ministry, the communists overran the area. One day later, the American missionaries were murdered. However, their baby, Helen, was still alive, left in a room where John and Elizabeth had been held. And as I read the book, it was interesting to see what God would do because I knew that God wasn't going to leave that baby alone. I wanted to see how God would handle the situation. The communists moved on. And the day after the execution, quote, a Chinese pastor who knew the missionaries came to the village. He, the Reverend Lo Keichol, was shocked to find his friends beheaded. He was told that the baby was still alive. He found baby Helen perfectly well. Keicho and his wife carried Helen many tens of miles to, his, to her maternal grandparents. Every few miles they stopped to feed Helen, and there would always be a nursing mother there to feed her. The record is, I believe, that she was raised by her grandparents, 
and every need was met, including her education. God loves his people and is faithful to us. I'm going to close now. Um, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and his sons, saying, On this wise shall you bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Let's go and have some fellowship.